we're not trying to make the animal emotionless and just yeah. nothing ever experienced. But I think for me, it's really when it begins to intersect the health of the family unit. That's a big, well, that's why our clients come to us. This is disrupting our family. My, you know, there was a bite risk. A bite did happen. And um, we can't go for a walk. We can't leave our house to, you know, I think about the animals that we're not able to give appropriate medical care to because that reactivity or that aggression has become so severe. So for me, that's the line when you start to see something detrimental from a health and well-being perspective. Welcome to the Call the Vet Show, the podcast that helps pet parents understand and optimize the health of their furry family so they can live the full and happy life you want for them. And here's your host, veterinarian Dr. Alex Avery. Hello, kia ora. Welcome to another episode of the Call the Vet Show. I'm delighted to be joining you again for another wonderful conversation that I had with our first return interviewee, uh, return expert veterinarian. I've been so fortunate and one of the great joys for me personally actually doing this show is the fact that I get to speak to experts all over the world uh, from my tiny little village in the South Island of New Zealand, which is otherwise, you know, pretty remote and can be cut off from the global community. But uh, I've been so fortunate and we've all been so fortunate to be able to learn from these experts. And Dr. Kasara Andre spoke to us all last year about CBD, uh, cannabis, and the emerging field, the developing evidence that shows that that really is a valuable treatment modality in so many different conditions. And it's definitely an episode that you should go and check out if you haven't heard that one already. I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, But today, uh, Dr. Kasara is joining us to talk about emotional disease. Now, this is something that I am really keen on discussing more and more because I think we focus so much on the physical well-being, the physical health, what our organ function is doing, whether our our limbs are working properly and we're pain-free, or I should say our pets are pain-free. We're we're so focused on that physical health. I think we sometimes can be a little bit neglectful of the their emotional health, their mental well-being. And, you know, I say that as a pet parent myself, um, but also as a veterinarian. And the more that I've thought about this as a real issue, the more I recognise it in the patients that I see in the veterinary clinic as well. And I think it's something that deserves more attention, more focus if we really want our pet dogs and cats to live their best life. And so Dr. Kassara, she's talking all about what emotional disease is, how common it actually is. And then she's switching over to talk actually about the use of psychedelic medicine in pets. Now, this really is kind of cutting edge at the forefront of uh, the science in this area, but there is a lot that we can learn from its emerging use in the human field as well, which uh, Dr. Kassara talks about as well in great depth. So even if that idea, the idea of giving your dog or cat psychedelics seems a little bit ridiculous to you, I definitely encourage you to keep listening through to the end because I think this is important information. And while your vet isn't going to be prescribing any of these medications anytime soon, I would imagine, uh, it's really important that we know about all of the potential developments for the future just so that we can be aware of them. And if they do become available, if they do continue to show promise and your pet may fall into the category of their use, you can jump on that and make the best use of 
all of the tools in your toolkit, all of the different treatment modalities, which again is another point that we touch on in this wonderful conversation. But before I introduce you to Dr. Kasara for the second time, I'd love it if you're not already subscribed to hit that subscribe or follow button on whatever app you're listening to this on. If you're listening to this at on the website at callthevet.org or apetshealth.com, then you can click on a button that takes you to whichever podcasting app you prefer and again you can hit that follow button you can also sign up to the newsletter the pet post and you'll receive these episodes straight to your inbox so you'll never miss a future episode just to keep you fully up to date on all of the developments in the field of pet health so with that out of the way here's my wonderful conversation with dr Kasara andre here's this episode's expert interview Dr. Kassara, it's wonderful to be talking to you again today. You're actually our first guest who has come back for a second time, so I'm really honoured to be uh, to, to be chatting to you again. And I think last time you actually kind of gave us a little tease about this topic and you mentioned psychedelic medicine. So that's what we're jumping into today and really about its treatment with emotional disease. Uh, so I'd love to start off really before we jump into that side of things. We're talking about emotional disease because it's probably not something that we maybe recognise a lot in our pets. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that, Alex. And I'll just say that it's lovely to be back with you and your audience. I had such a fun time chatting with you before about cannabis medicine. And you're right. Um, I've I've recently begun to shift a little bit of my professional interests and some of my practice directions towards psychedelic medicine. But really, it's about that emotional health and looking for novel solutions, of which psychedelic medicine is one. So I think that's a perfect place for us to start just to chat about emotional disease and what this kind of could mean. So first, let's just start off by saying that that term, you're not going to see directly applied to animals, or I can't find it yet in any like published research or paper, because I think we're seeing a lot of missed species interactions. So you see on the human side, a lot of information about mental health, mental illness, um, and when I ask my human counterparts, they sort of say that's from an insurance perspective, like why it's called that. Cause I always ask the question, why not emotional illness or emotional disease? And so there's some, there's some like underlying policy things there. But when I look at what our human colleagues are, are working on from an emotional perspective on a mental health perspective. And then as a veterinarian, I see the patients that I'm dealing with in clinic. And then also some of the other areas of my life that I intersect with them. It's just, we see a lot of similar clinical signs and we know that behavioral conditions are not exclusive to humans. So what our terminology is, I think really still needs to be defined, but that's true in any area of emerging science. We have to have that precision in our terminology so we can actually talk across industries. So I don't think that's necessarily there now. When I use the term emotional disease, I'm really pulling a lot from the human side. And I have a couple of quotes that I just wanted to, to pull out. Um, this is from a really interesting paper, um, actually on the expressions of emotions across species. And this is really saying emotions are functional states that have essential roles in promoting survival and have really emerged over time. So when I say emotional disease, I'm really saying that there's just some type of misfunction, dysfunction, dysregulation in this set of emotional states that really serve a functional purpose. And when we look at the human side, we see definitions like disruption of physiology, disruption of mentation, disruption of behavior. So I think we see some really, really close cross-industry use, but I don't know that we've yet seen a One Health 
idea of what this emotional disease is and that's the part that i'm really interested in yeah and i guess i mean it's a developing field in the the human side of things the mental health has gained a lot more exposure i guess over recent maybe I don't know, maybe the last decade or so, certainly. Yeah, I mean, we've got our absolutely. problems within the, the veterinary profession, which I've spoken about before. Um, in here in New Zealand, we have big issues with um, you know, people kind of really struggling and, and mental health services maybe not being um nearly adequate to meet that need. Um and I guess people will recognize some pretty common maybe emotional diseases. Um, separation anxiety, that's one that springs to mind, is probably one that people are really uh, more familiar with. Absolutely. Um, ones that are really important on in my work is canine PTSD. I, I am a veteran of the U.S. Army Veterinary Corps. And so human PTSD, as well as canine PTSD, when that comes from a combat scenario and whether the animal is still utilizable or we need to get adopted out, that, that's actually been a big part of my early career. So that in particular, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder in humans and what that looks like in animals, that's that's kind of the area that I'm particularly interested in. But yeah, separation anxiety, anxiety in general, aggression, um, inter-animal aggression, reactivity is also one that we're seeing a lot, leash reactivity, leash aggression. Those are some of the ones that spring to mind for me. Yeah. And I get uh, it then becomes difficult, I would imagine, to draw a line of where does it go from being a, a healthy behavior? I'm thinking here, you know, the old fashioned, the dog who was absolutely terrified of the vet because every time they went there, something horrible happened. Well, that's <laughs> not a disease that they're scared of that situation. That's a learned, completely appropriate response. Thankfully, not one that we want absolutely. anymore with our fear free practices and things. Um, but where do we then draw the line, you know, from a dog who's just being a bit difficult on a lead um, through lack of training maybe, or because they mm -hmm. are actually experiencing some real distress there. Yeah. And Alex, you know, I think that that's probably where we as medical communities, human and veterinary need to spend a lot of our time. When does it become detrimental to that animal's well-being? For me, that's a definition, definition of disease because the emotion itself isn't wrong. I'm anxious, I'm nervous, I'm upset, I'm hungry, I'm happy. Those are just summations of what the physiology is experiencing and kind of that outward expression of it. So you're right. Those aren't the things we're not trying to make the animal emotionless and just yeah. nothing ever experienced. But I think for me, it's really when it begins to intersect the health of the family unit. That's a big, well, that's why our clients come to us this is disrupting our family. My, you know, there was a bite risk, a bite did happen. And um, we can't go for a walk, we can't leave our house to, you know, I think about the animals that we're not able to give appropriate medical care to, because that reactivity or that aggression has become so severe. So for me, that's the line when you start to see something detrimental from a health and well being perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, I mean, that sounds very, very sensible and something that people can relate to from mm -hmm. the point of view of how common this is, because that those are everyday situations. And then you've got your kind of combat PTSD situation. Although I think people will be much more familiar that PTSD, it came into maybe our recognition and our um, consciousness through combat situations, but actually the mm. recognition that, that people can experience that through all kinds of different manner of experiences, which may not seem particularly severe from that even from the outside uh, how, how common how common are these conditions do you feel or do you is that 
do we do we know that do you have a a, a gut feeling or you know what what yeah how, how common is this a problem because i suspect it's probably a lot more common than we we really do appreciate i i think in every area of medicine when we don't have precise terminology we ought to, are automatically not doing a good job of collecting data it means that we're missing something or overrepresenting something so i always like to say that first, that when we're beginning to explore a new area, we have to come into it with a lot of humility and say, well, here's the parameters we're starting with. Does this at least get us moving, give us some new ideas of working with something, and then always be willing to change, right? That's the, that's the purpose of scientific scrutiny is to yeah. say, well, I, I had my hypothesis, but it was wrong. Let's go back to the drawing board and yeah. not just determinedly stick with it. But, you know, there there are definitely numbers. Um, there's one uh, actually in DVM 360, if y'all have that publication, which, you know, kind of is a little bit more blog article-y, but it has a really interesting article that I, I found interesting from a post-COVID perspective. So it does um, a, a brief survey, and obviously those are a little bit biased, but the numbers that they said in there were, over a 700% increase in canine separation anxiety post-COVID. And what I want to add into the conversation is we might not be tracking this well or as scientifically as we should in the animals, but if we look at what's happening to the human side, we have better numbers there. So, So then thinking about how much is the animal being affected is probably going to give us our best idea of what our animal population is being how it's being affected. So some of those numbers, I mean, those are just overwhelming. Um, this one in, in 2019, so prior to COVID yeah. and shutdown and pandemic, one in every eight people, so that's 970 million um, people around the world have a mental health disorder. So we're talking a lot, a lot of people, a lot of humans. And, you know, for me, yes, I think about our companion animals, but I also think about deforestation, um, captivity, things like that. And and probably not the focus of today's conversation, but I think we can say as humans suffer some conditions and maybe figure out our way about what we need to do in this world, animals really are bearing the brunt of our decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And I think anyone who's gone to, you know, maybe zoos or, you know, seen captive animals, you know, we recognize that, that, that they can be very stressful sometimes more than others, but we can recognize the humanity, if you like, in terms of emotion in other animals when we when we see them yeah yeah saying that absolutely and and you know even another way for us to assess that would be how much effort zoos put into uh environmental enrichment behavioral therapy like to make the animals um have a good environment how much effort do the keepers need to put in just to maintain that at a basic level so i think there's a lot of pieces that we can look at and sort of say this deserves better scrutiny without really thinking that we have good numbers. Cause I would say that I don't think we, we do now I'm a little bit biased in my practice because I see primarily animals with emotional trauma. That's just where I've begun to work. So from my, from my practice perspective, they're everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, So I guess, so that's the, the size of the problem and how can we then maybe improve our recognition at home? If we're a pet parent sat at home, what are maybe some of the telltale signs that our pets, you know, I guess primarily we are speaking cats and dogs here. How can we know that they are experiencing some level of emotional distress without leaving it to the the case of them trying to 
chew their way through walls or right. burst through windows because uh, you know right. by the time we get to there they've been telling us a long time before that <laughs> that's the very like last ditch effort yeah. to say something is really really wrong i have found that hypervigilance is one of the most telltale signs of an animal really being in distress one of those early early indicators of the animal not being able to find that parasympathetic or restful space on their own. And an early indicator of there's a lot going on in this animal's environment that it feels deserves attention. And I think that's an important piece of this conversation, but it doesn't always have to be justified. For me, a lot of my clients and my pet parents are frustrated at the, he's reacting to nothing. He's reacting to the um, beep of the dry, dryer when it finishes yeah. or when I open the dishwasher. And so that nonsensical connection sometimes I think is really hard for us as humans to find our compassion and say, okay, there is something wrong and not just blow it off as Ugh, you're being, yeah. you're so annoying. Like, what are you doing? Why are you barking in the middle of the night? So that piece of what is the animal actually paying attention to and what does it perceive as the threat from the environment is a lot of where I think we need to be looking. Now, again, a lot of my work and my interest in animal emotional trauma does come from my background in loving and being around um, many, many military individuals, their families, their children, um, servicemen and women themselves. And we really see that that hypervigilance is a key component of PTSD in humans as well. So for me, that's usually what I have my pet parents pay the most attention to. Journaling, a camera at home, really seeing what the animal cues onto are really, really great ways to kind of pay attention to that. I'll list a couple of other things though. Um, out of character aggression. So something that the animal never would have reacted to before. Now there could have been an escalation, right? There could have been something we just weren't noticing. But when that pet parent comes to you and says, this just, I just don't, this isn't my animal. This isn't my yeah. cat. This isn't my dog. That for me is a really good indicator that we need to be looking at something else. First rule out obvious medical conditions, because we know that those can definitely affect emotions. But then beyond that, what's really causing this need for aggression or the feel of the animal that it needs to push kind of that environment away from them. Other things are prolonged arousal or really rapid arousal. Now this ties into that hypervigilance piece. If you have an animal who's already ready for something to be wrong, you're also going to see a really fast upswing in that arousal level. And interestingly, really difficult to get them to leave that arousal state and calm down again. So pet parents might notice things such as they're not responsive to cues when they're overstimulated. So they can't even focus on you telling them to come or to sit. They're just sure. so hyper-focused on something. Um, shut down in the face of stimuli. So if something happens, there's just nothing. Yeah. You know, they're yeah. just kind of freeze, freeze right. mode. Um, and then again, I'll just mention it because it's important in some of the work that I'm interested in, just body posture. There's a lot that we as medical professionals, I think, can do to make the situation better with just some basic body language communication training for our pet parents. What does the tuck tail mean? What does the ears pin back mean? What does that crouch stance, I'm ready to leave or go, like I'm, I'm, my muscles are all on and activated. I think that that's really easy for a lot of pet parents to pick up on. And so I always include that in my journaling instructions. Yeah, I love that. I love a few things about what you've just said there. I and mean, I love the fact that 
you know what you're saying about needing to rule out other medical problems because you know just as you were talking it it just struck me well that's like pain causes a lot of those things so change in aggression change in vigilance change in reactivity to noises you know maybe as well um skin disease you know all kinds of very mm-hmm. common conditions so there's no yeah they try and communicate with us but there's a lot of similarities between different conditions so not jumping to that emotional distress and equally Absolutely. not jumping to oh well it's probably just a bit of arthritis not right. that should ever be saying just a bit of arthritis but there could be something more involved um Absolutely. behind things and then i yeah focusing on the fact that there is a problem rather than what's causing that problem because it's only natural isn't it to think well it's only a it's only a beep of a washer like you say it's yeah. you know that is not a threat how can you think that way well it doesn't really matter they they feel that way so it is a reality and kind of get over that hump and and just focus on on the problem exactly and you know we see in animals just like in humans the consistent or the repeated injury whether that be from an environmental stimuli or a medical issue really can result in those longer term behavioral disorders. Like think about the animal who has beginning or stages of arthritis, but as it ages, it becomes so sensitized to anyone touching it that that in itself becomes a behavioral problem mm-hmm. with pain as the underlying disorder. So, so again, I think that's yeah. really interesting for us as medical providers to think about because it is a spectrum. In the past, I think we've always looked at behavioral conditions as diagnosed, treatable, and then medical. But really, I think we need to move our view a little bit and say emotions really are an indicator of what the internal physiologic status is and how that status is responding to the environment. So you can have this triangulation and if uncared for problems exist over time, you're absolutely going to see the emotional state of the animal try to fix that environment, whether it's justified or not, whether it works or not. So that meshing in the middle, I think is really important yeah. for us. Yeah. And I and I guess then as well, if we've got, well, going back to the arthritis example, you know, you tackle the pain, you do all of the, the things that we can do for arthritis. If we're not addressing that behavior aspect, we could be in a situation where the animal isn't actually in pain anymore, but they are yes. still emotionally distressed. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think we talked about this last time when we were talking more about cannabis that's such an amazing place to utilize one of the emerging medicines of cannabis medicine in helping decrease that pain as well as anxiety. And when I'm working with cannabis in my practice, we really try to focus on what is the animal's perception of what's going to happen next. Do they think it's going to be painful? We could have done a TPLO and they're great. Like they, they should have full function, but if the animal still like, oh, it's going to hurt. I don't want to. I don't want to try. You know, we can be the best surgeon in the world. And if we don't have that, I mean, we need to be careful from the anthropomorphic perspective, but the buy-in from the animal, we're pretty limited on what we can actually do. Yeah. So that then brings us to what we can do. And I guess the field that we were talking about of psychedelic medicine, and it's funny, I you know, when you, you mentioned that, I don't I think I'd maybe come, you know, read read a few headlines about it, and and you know, not really paid it much more attention. But then have been mm. seeing more and more, you know, news reports from a people point of view of of yeah. them suffering with PTSD, um, and and having very good results with psychedelic medicine. And clearly, we need to be a little bit careful about the headlines we read in mainstream media, not necessarily yes. reflecting the reality. <laughs> absolutely, but, but but you know, absolutely started to see this. So I guess the 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 beginning question has to be: Well, what are psychedelic medicines because people probably jump to a number of different you know drugs in their mind but it's important that we know what we're talking about 
Absolutely. Uh, in general, there are quite a few psychedelic molecules and people will list um, MDMA, psilocybin, LSD, ayahuasca. Um, there are quite a few others, but then you start to get into indigenous use. So peyote and um, there's just a lot essentially is what your listeners should kind of be familiar with. Sure. Most humans who have experienced psychedelics, if you say psychedelic medicine for animals, the first response that I get is, wow, that's a lot for an animal. Like that's a lot for an animal to go through. But then I always sort of push back and say, that might be a really human perspective. The things that humans experience on a psychedelic experience might be very human. So there really is an element of veterinary professionals advocating for animals in any emerging medicine field, whether or not we use that medicine for animals. Sometimes it's just the, um, let's pause for a moment and think about species differences, one health translational and, you know, veterinary professionals are just <laughs> the ones who usually end up doing that. Yeah. But when I say psychedelic medicine for animals, really there's two that stand out as I think potentials, MDMA and psilocybin. And the reasons for that is just basically timeline. Many of these molecules have a long period of action. So a human might undergo a, a, an experience with a psychedelic and it'd be like ayahuasca, um, eight hours, 10 hours, like the experience is quite long. Yeah. MDMA and psilocybin, they both have about six hours from um, administration to end from the human side, sort of what we see humans experience with the peak being at three hours. So Alex, if I say that to you and you think about dealing with an animal, I think probably the length of time sure. is what pops to your mind. Like, can yeah. I just ask you, like, what, what springs to your mind as a practitioner when I say that? Yeah, I mean that's a long time for that's a long time to be managing them and to be making sure that they're safe and you know well and yeah and it's appropriate for them and they don't need any extra assistance and that's kind of that's my initial thoughts without any experience yes. of psychedelics from a human yes. or animal point of view. Absolutely, I agree with that a hundred percent. And it's not something that we have an answer to, but yeah. I'll I'll say that that's what you know my team and I are really investigating now. What does that need to be? What type of care? Should there be, can the animal be by itself and okay, or does it need to have a guide? We see in a lot of the human research and a lot of human work, the guide perspective is really important, but that's a lot of verbal guiding. You know, when we think about the human side, so much of that is built on human interaction, verbal interactions. What does that mean for an animal? if we ever find the case where we really need to use psychedelics. And I'll, I'll just throw that in there. We can circle back to it later, but many times psychedelics might be an answer, but if we really intentionally work with endocannabinoid system, health, healing, family unit medicine, get the human on a good path, many times the animal's just okay. So I want to throw that out there for your listeners of I think this is worth exploring because it's a new and emerging modality in our world. And I have a couple of other areas other than direct use in animals that I think veterinary practitioners need to be aware of what's happening on the psychedelic front. But, you know, many times animals are okay if their humans are okay. So this might just be a humans, let's really make sure that you can get the help you need and make sure your animal's okay in the midst of it. So I'll just throw that out there as, um, Sure. It, it's, yeah. Or, it's definitely or, a family unit thing. Yeah. Or even if it becomes, you know, even if it becomes more of a mainstream option, just like everything, it it's not necessarily the option that every individual will 
need you know it's it's another tool that we have available absolutely absolutely and i do think that there probably will be cases so canine ptsd from a combat scenario when we have a really point injury I think that those might be the best scenarios to really consider some of these psychedelic modalities. Um, animal victims of sexual abuse, that's a an area that we don't have really any options from a behavioral perspective. So I, I do think there are going to be places where this is justified, but as we're exploring this for all of us, pet parents and veterinary practitioners alike, we just need to have our critical thinking hat on yeah, sure. <laughs> and our scientific scrutiny. We kind of look <laughs> askance at everything and make sure we're examining it closely. Yeah. And with our, with our one health kind of hat on, if you like thinking of, we can learn from the emerging field from a, from a human treatment point of view, there is, as I understand it, some pretty encouraging work that has been done and has shown to, to make a big benefit. Absolutely. Some of the, and I, I have an article that I'll send you for that. Um, some of the work, particularly in MDMA and human PTSD is incredible. The numbers of response are just breathtaking. And again, because I have really strong connections in the veteran world, I'm so excited to see that. There are just so many people that I care so deeply about that I see struggle with that. And I, I think everyone knows what I, what I mean when I say that. To have an answer from the human perspective is just amazing, at least something else to try. And I think you know that I'm really interested in MDMA for veterinary professionals as humans. So as healthcare workers, we're beginning to see a lot of research come out about psychedelic use, cannabis use for medical professionals, for healthcare professionals, but um, veterinary professionals usually aren't counted among among those groups. And so many of the ongoing studies we're not eligible for. So there's a there's just a lot going on in the veterinary professional and our animals at intersection with psychedelic world. And so sometimes when, when I chat with someone, it can be a little confusing because sometimes it's not clear which species I'm talking about. And it's usually a one health, <laughs> usually yeah, yeah. across the board. What can yeah. we do better? I guess, I guess one thing that just springs to mind is that we've spoken about one health here um, and I have spoken about it in the past, but people might not be aware of what that term actually means. Um, so what, yeah. what, does, what does that mean when we're, mentioned, when we're saying one health? So the, the basic idea is the, the that uh, human health, animal health, and environmental health are connected, that it's really not possible to look at one without evaluating the effects on the other. Now, a lot of times this is taken from the direction of humans kind of in the middle, but when you hear it from a veterinary professional, we tend to be a lot more um, balanced and actually all of these are, are connected and we need to be looking at every part and place. And I'll throw in an additional perspective that I'm working on. It's not just how does one damage to one affect the other, but how can one in one area of interconnectedness actually be utilized to improve the effects of the other group. Does that make sense, Alex? Like sometimes we usually yeah, think about yeah. it from a, we have, we um, tore down that forest and so we're going to see how it affects everywhere else. But in my work, we're really trying to think about if we really improve the health of the animal. So again, back to emotional disease, if you have a medical service animal, so a diabetic alert animal, a seizure alert animal, a working dog, and you have emotional disease in that animal, so they're not able to do their utilitarian function, we have a really direct risk to the human, so almost a public health risk, if we make that animal more resilient, more emotionally resilient, physiologically resilient, 
does that improve the health of all the other sectors? So that, that positive back direction, I think, is a really important thing for us to examine. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a wonderful summary of that. It's a, it's a, it, it's great that that conversation or this conversation has been started among all of the different, um, yeah, different professionals in every different area in the environmental sector as well. And there's a lot more yeah. awareness um, that we've spoken about many times on this podcast about the environmental impact of our pets and what we can do to improve that, Absolutely. which then has a knock-on benefit for for us and for for, for them as well. Uh, so, Dr. Kassar, I'd love maybe just to kind of think about, um, you know, what the future might hold i mean crystal ball gazing i know a lot of this might might be but maybe with respect to our psychedelic medicines but also you know you spoke to us at, at length and in great detail about our cannabis and our cbd and the endocannabinoid system um and many people will i guess put all of these more alternative forms of therapy and in inverted commas into the same bucket so what does maybe you know what would maybe you hope the future looks like and you know over what kind of time frame maybe well, I think the time frame is going to be pretty short. Um, if anyone is uh, following for some reason Colorado politics and regulation, the state of Colorado just decriminalized, so not legalized, but decriminalized most naturally de derived psychedelics. And so psilocybin is the one of those. There are several, but that's the one that's gotten the most attention because humans can now grow that at home. So a, a human can have a grow of psilocybin and it not be criminal. Again, yeah. different from legal, but it's not criminal. And Alex, I think you can easily see that my work from the cannabis side, is just exactly the same here. And so we're really yeah. pushing for harm reduction education first. Just like with cannabis, if a human has a stash of cannabis and your animal gets into it, we have THC intoxication, we have potential for foreign bodies, we have a lot of things that can happen negative from there. The same thing happens with any of the psychedelics. So yeah, if someone sure. human is using a psychedelic at home, either legally, illegally, scripted out, like whatever that future looks, the harm reduction that pet parents need is to the same, put your stash up high, put it yeah. behind a lock and key, the same thing that you would do for a child yeah. is really really important for animals because i imagine the, of, yeah i imagine the the impact is potentially a lot more severe with an overdose of those compared to with a cannabis overdose which is yes. generally very very safe yes absolutely now the animal might be a little bit miserable on a thc overdose yeah. but from the psychedelic side we see some really powerful molecules there and importantly alex they're really small so a lot of these are in pills and tablets and it's really really easy for an animal to ingest and it's just that's something that we really want to raise awareness of of your animals are in your space they are sharing your same space what safety mechanisms do you have in place and an additional piece for psychedelics as humans explore the use of psychedelics often at home um, privately led ceremonies whatever that means I, I want them to remember that animals share their space and probably are sharing their emotional state. So again, yeah. back to that emotional disease perspective, if a human, and I'm just talking about what's happening here in Colorado, if a human decides to consume, let's say psilocybin on their own and guided or not, they're really having a robust emotional experience. No one's told the animal that that's either okay or not okay, or what they should do in the middle of it. So if you have an animal that already has emotional disease, say separation anxiety, or just really having a tough time settling itself, and they're in that same room. Now, we don't know this, but just from a yeah. 
well-being perspective, that raised awareness of your animals can absolutely be worried about you when your heart rate changes, your breathing changes, you're laughing or you're crying. Think about what that means for the animals that share your space. And it's simple. Just let make sure that they have a place to go, that they have the choice to leave the room if they want to. Yeah, wonderful. And then for people who are you know, pretty excited about this, and maybe it's their reality. I wasn't aware of the fact that that had become yeah decriminalized. So, yeah, things do move very quickly. I mean, we're still <laughs> struggling, still struggling with availability of other medications and substances here in New Zealand. So it'll be a long time before anything like that comes here. I I, I would imagine. But for people who really want to, you know, keep up to date and maybe dive more into the world of the work that you're doing, Doctor Kasara, where where can they go? Where's the best place to send them? I, I would actually direct everyone to our newsletter of our nonprofit. Care for the Healer is where we are really beginning to investigate doing some of this research. So we're interested in looking at MDMA for canine PTSD, MDMA for veterinary professional burnout and kind of suicide ideation, see if there's some improvement there, and then psilocybin for pet loss grief support. So those are the three pieces that we actually are going to start fundraising for soon. So careforthehealer.org is our website that will be the housing organization and kind of leading that research. So that's probably the best way to stay in touch with the bigger things that are happening. Veterinary Sci, uh, veterinarypsy.org is where I'm putting a lot of my veterinary specific information and and pet parents can find the harm reduction education. So We're trying to keep all of that together in one easy place because there's a lot going on. There's a lot of research. There's a lot of conversation. And I think just like cannabis, it can be a little bit overwhelming, but the potentials, it's kind of mind blowing what we, what we might have potential for. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's wonderful work and it's important work that people do because like you say, we need to have our hypothesis and we need to explore them and there may be dead ends that come, come across, but then we know, and it helps guide us and and gives us more tools to use for for these yeah very debilitating and quality of life altering sorry i've just had a cat join me on my lap Um, (laughs) quality of life yeah quality of life influencing um yeah problems so dr sarah thank you so much for for joining us again it's been a wonderful conversation um and you'll have to come back for your next project as well absolutely thanks everyone helping your pet live the happy healthy life they deserve so i really hope you enjoyed that conversation and if you're anything like me then i know you'll have learned heaps about a topic that perhaps wasn't in the forefront of your mind if you know anybody in your sphere so some friends or family who own pets who would benefit from this information then i'd love it if you could share it with them just flick them a quick message on whatsapp or email or post it on your socials i'd really appreciate that it would mean so much to me and it really helps me with my mission of helping more pet parents and more pets across the world no matter where they are get access to to true experts in their field good information so that they can make the best choices for their pet so thank you in advance for that it really does mean a lot and until the next episode i'm veterinarian dr alex this is the call the vet show because they're family that's it for this episode of the call the vet show be sure to visit callthevet.org to join the conversation access the show notes and discover our fantastic bonus content we'll see you next time